Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. I've got my friend Ted Perlman on the show today. Ted is a guitarist. He's also a producer, an arranger, an audio engineer, and a Grammy-winning recording artist. Ted has played guitar for some of the most famous acts in pop music in the 20th century. He's super interesting. I've known him for a few years. We lost uh, touch a little bit over COVID, and this was a terrific reunion for us. I hope you enjoy our interview. Thanks so much for listening, and here's Ted. I'm doing just great, Ted. It's great to see you. Guitar, nice to see you. Guitar in the back. I put guitars here for texture. You know, oh, oh, that's the new, um, what is that? What's that white one called? A lava guitar. The lava. Tell me about yeah, it. One, is it? Yeah, this one, um, it's uh, got like a built-in amplifier. So it has like um, sounds that are like the... Got this beautiful sound that comes off the uh, let's see here. yeah, it's got like you. Yeah. Are there, I, I mean, is there, a, is there a speaker built into the body that shoots the there's sound like, out? Yeah, there's, there's an amp built in that has like effects and stuff like that, and then you can also plug it in to uh, the computer and you can like stereo, get stereo out. But just sitting is just unbelievable sound. It sounds so, really cool. So it's not, I mean, it's not just a gimmick. It's a real, like, it's something you actually like to play. It's great. Yeah. And they, um, it's this new Chinese company. So um, they, uh, it, it's like the thing, it's made out of this material that's, um, it's is not it fiberglass or it's some of the, some kind of uh, material, but the sound is so beautiful and, um, you can take it to the beach, like the sun won't warp it. And you can also take it out to Antarctica and the freezing right. temperatures won't break. it. so it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's light. They also make a uh, ukulele that's sending me, it is in blue and white and, uh, different colors and stuff. It was really, That's really amazing. Cool. And it's pretty, it's pretty small. And it just has, I said, the sound comes out of here. And the, just the, just to hear by yourself is really nice. That's incredible. It's really cool. So if you, if you want, you know, me too. You can sing all Crosby, Susan Well, I... That's amazing. It's really I cool. you'll be you'll be proud that the guitar in the background uh, I've been trying to learn I started so last year my my one of my New Year's resolutions was to learn the ukulele I, I have no experience with stringed instruments at all and um, and so I you know I've always wanted to play the guitar or the ukulele and I, I really wanted to play the guitar but I thought the ukulele was kind of a good place to start to get my fingers working and moving chords around sure. and stuff like that and um, so I learned a few songs maybe five songs on the ukulele. Uh -huh. And then I got this Yamaha 
um, at the beginning of this year. I actually got it for my, I bought it for myself for my birthday um, in December. And my goal this year, my new one of my New Year's resolutions is to learn a few songs. And the one that I'm really, really focused on right now is um, it's it's by John Prine. It's it's actually a, it's actually a Blaze Foley song. Uh-huh. Um, it's called Clay Pigeons, and I've I basically I've I've learned I've learned maybe like the very first part of it. Um, let's see if I can play it for you uh, uh, now that I'm live. You know, so I'm getting this kind of picking. I, I'm, I'm terrible at it. So, you know, it's, I'm trying to do this, um, trying to learn this, this finger picking style. That's all I've got. That's all I've got, Ted. I don't have anything else. I'll play with you. It's. Oh, come on, forget it. That's crazy. That's <laughs> no, cool, man. That's nice. But you'll this one you'll love. It just feels really good to play and for taking around, taking it to work or whatever. It's got a really cool case. And the ukulele has like a see-through case, which you can go to like Lava's website. It's pretty beautiful. Wow, okay, cool. The Yukon it also comes in different colors and stuff. So this I actually took it to a recording session yesterday for the first time. So who are you who are you, you know, working with? Uh, who are you working with right now? Um, I was working with, uh, yesterday I was with uh, Orville Stover. Now, Orville is the one we did all the Margaret Atwood uh, music for, for one of her books, uh, Year of the Flood. Mm-hmm. And so Orville, uh, Margaret Atwood, you know, the author, The Handmaid's Tale and all that. So we, uh, she had poems and Orville wrote music for it. So I produced the album with Orville and it was pretty cool. And Is so that, that similar was, to uh, the thing that I did with you uh, a couple years ago? No, those it's... were um, those were sonnets that that guy wrote. Right, right. So we did, you did some Morris Robinson did some, that was really the grand inquisitor. Oh, right? that's you know? right. Yeah. And I Gloria, forgot I set Gloria, that up for you. Gloria Loring. So that was like pretty cool. I mean, Morris, I just had him keep doing, um, I'm your father, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty cool. So I, I actually stay in touch with him and he's great, you know, just to like, he's wherever he's doing something just to like, you know, hear him at rehearsal. He posts stuff where he messes up and he'll be like, missed the note oh, sorry you know i love morris he's such a he's such a nice guy a real a real light in the opera world that's for sure a really great guy oh yeah just that boy i mean him and that contra bassoon when i came and you got me to see the show i was like i couldn't believe the voice and just like that sound of that in the second act when that contra bassoon comes in and that deeper than any synthesizer it was like Boom, like that. Like, <laughs> two guys have been playing, I think. So that was pretty cool. But anyway, with Orville, we were just doing more songs. And so um, I've been working with him for, God, about uh, 20 years now. Yeah, and yeah. We've done concerts with Margaret Atwood. When the book came out, we did concerts in New York. We did some at UCLA. So, you know, she she blew up really big since that time. And so they, they signed three of her books to be made into a series of what the first one was the handmaid's tale and the year of the flood which is when we worked on supposedly the third one so fingers that's crossed terrific so so for my listeners who who don't know who you are can you give me a little a little uh primer on ted perlman and your history in the music business just a just a little uh buy how, sheet. Long, <laughs> how, long you, how long do we have um, so bert Bacharach. 
Um, right back, back Whitney Houston, Diana Ross, Joe, you know, Joe Cocker, um, Celine, uh, Elton John, just, you know, like a billion names. And also in areas like crossover to you, I said I'd work with Lalo Schifrin on stuff for the Vienna Symphony, which was Placido and Jose Carreras and Diana Ross. And I actually have a number one classical record with the Five Browns, which is kind of, you normally I'm working in pop, and, you know, that kind of feel, but to have a number one classical record with those, uh, those five piano players. With, sure. I was on Burt Back. I was on Dean Martin's original uh, record. Everybody loves somebody sometimes. So we got the original vocal, cleaned it up from Capitol, and then they put their pianos on. It was great. And Greg Field played drums, and it was just a it was great. So to have a number one classical record is pretty cool. Yeah, but absolutely. I've, I've done stuff uh, for if it was everybody with Bacharach. I have a Grammy with uh, with Dr. Dre's on it, and Rufus Wainwright, and, and Chris Bodie and the Black Eyed Peas. That's a pretty cool record. And um, I've just pretty much uh, crossed all the uh, areas. I've done jazz with the Manhattan Transfer, and I've done, uh, I said, classical pop, all different fields with singers, a lot of singers, instrumentalists, and I've played guitar with lots of uh, artists and different people. But um, since we last spoke, you know, I've traveled around the world. I've lived in Israel. I've been played for the Queen of England. I've been to Japan, China. Since we last spoke, I took. I've been to China three times and um, two, you know, I've met with uh, government officials. One was as a project director for they're going to build a theme park. And then the third time was most exciting is we're going to um, put on concerts and do music education. We talked to two of the universities in Shanghai. They want to give me my own music school, which is um, my wife thinks it's egotistical to call it the Ted Perlman music school. I was like, man, the school of music, you know, they have sure. different schools, but. Um, something where I can bring people like yourself in to uh, teach people in China and to really, the way I see uh, learning, where learning shouldn't be something mysterious and, um, you know, only secretive. I think it should be open to everybody and music should be uh, fun and accessible. And that's my own personal concept. So people like you who agree that music shouldn't be something only for a certain select few, it would be great to have a school that teaches like that and to show sure. the Chinese kids how they, what they do is just as valid as what they do in America or England. That's my main uh, point. It's the same. Education, that's something that you've been involved with in the past as a, as a teacher. Is that something that you um, see yourself? I mean, I don't, so for instance, for me, my voice is my instrument and I know that it's aging along with my body and I've got maybe another 10, 15, 20 years at the most of, of being a really good singer. Um, and I don't know You're if my patients, singer. well, thank you, but I don't know if my patients will last 15 or 20 more years. So I've been doing things for the last five years or so to try and make the transition into a different line of work that I'd like equally. Um, now for an instrumentalist, I don't know, I, I really don't know. Do your fingers start to wear out? Do you not play as well? Or is this or is, is teaching just something that you're adding more vigorously to your schedule? Is that, or do you see it as a transition into a different kind of career entirely? Um, well, in China, um, the original project, we, I met the people, I have two partners over there. We have a company called One World, One Family. And so one of my partners I met on my previous trip where I met with all these government officials, he works for government in uh, one of the cities. And so he was really excited about doing something. He kept trying to find a project to work on. Then he brought in the third partner who produces, um, he does uh, soccer, soccer matches, and he does big concerts and he's been spends his time between Brazil and China. So um, 
they said, listen, let's put on a concert. The first concert we're going to do is Manhattan Transfer. So everything was set up and go. We had this big night, and I was going to play even two songs in the middle and a big jazz singer from China. And the whole thing was there, and then COVID hit. And bip. so we got uh, put on hold, and nobody's been in and out of China. And so it got postponed like three times, and they were like, okay, let's just wait until it's over. But they said, how about music education in China? That's really, really big. And it kind of made me rethink uh, my whole way to be over there. Because, I mean, great, I get to produce Chinese artists and, um, you know, we can put on concerts, but what impact do I leave that really would stay? And I think in education, I can really use all my years of uh, experience to, um, to teach and to just show the way I see the uh, music business across, you know, in any style genre, just to be able to, and I know so many people, I said, like yourself and other teachers that could uh, share their experiences that the kids in China maybe wouldn't uh, interact with people like that. And people who have been in the business uh, a lot of years in different areas to being able to expose that people like a Gloria Loring who's done so many different things, imagine her teaching kids singing and performance, which is great. It's not just somebody who's got a hit record, but it's somebody who has experience you know, in the business. Burt Bacharach might be a little old to travel, but I would still love to be able to bring somebody like that, you know, and right. just to have them share uh, what they've learned in all the, Melissa Manchester, just people who have done it. And Melissa's father was the oboist with the New York Philharmonic. So she brings so much uh, culture and, and uh, experiences. So that was exciting to me. I mean, I've done, right. I, taught, I taught at UCLA a couple of semesters, record production. I've done lectures at Duke. And so the teaching thing has never been my focus because, you know, I've written for magazines on background vocals, recording vocals, but uh, most of my time has been spent in production and performing more in the studios. Um, just as I get older, though, I don't find myself, uh, I, I like the way I play better. I just, I, you know, I may not have the uh, speed, but when I was younger, I was more concerned with speed than what and I was the, playing. The technical stuff, right. Right. Yeah, so the older I get, I seem to play more like a singer than a musician, which is really good, you know, and more of the people I listen to are more singers. And I find myself uh, concerned with learning melodies of songs, where in the past, I learned all the rhythm accompaniment, I knew everything, but I never knew the melody. As long as I was with the singer, I was a hero. So now I've, I've been doing a lot of instrumental things, and it's just... Uh, more of a mature kind of way of approaching things. Right, right. I was thinking that maybe it's just a matter of life experience. I find that um, that applies to me as well. You know, for me, mm -hmm. uh, my high notes have never been uh, my the thing that I did the best. For me, it was always musica uh, musicality and line. And the, the, the older I get, the more I realize how um, the expression of what it is that we're doing is so much more important, at least mm -hmm. in, in my stage of life. Uh, I, I feel like I feel like um, how we do things is mm -hmm. is not as important as what we're doing or why we're doing it. And I teach that mm -hmm. uh, since we last spoke. I've been teaching too. I have eleven private voice students. I teach over at uh, Debbie Allen's wow. uh, uh, for Debbie Allen, and um, and I've got these kids. And they're young and they're they're you know they all have agents. They're all in movies and television, and they're all. Mm -hmm. Wanting to be triple threats and blah blah blah, and the hardest thing that I, uh, the hardest part of my job is convincing them of the reason 
for the uh, the reason f for which we sing or why we sing why do we sing why aren't we just saying words and why aren't we just playing music why is there music and words and what does it mean um what does it mean to humanity what does it mean to you personally what what are we saying why are we saying it that's the thing that i i love about teaching and i find i don't know as an instrumental teacher if it's the same and i i will i'd like to ask you this question but as as a voice voice teacher i find that 90 percent of my job is like psychiatrist or mm -hmm. psychologist and mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what it is we're trying to say and how best to say it to suit your personality is that the, is that the same when you're teaching our uh, students well i know i agree with you 100 percent. i don't like teaching um guitar that's not you know anything i mean my experience learning how to play was really just thrown out there and learned you know i went to a teacher and they taught me how to play to where i get hired so that concept our newborn some other people our newborn did a lot of movie scores we all came out with this guy lenny frank who was a genius and his student was ethan fine who played cats on broadway for like 20 years or something uh, so they taught you how to learn enough to get around the older guys. And then once you were there, it was your job to learn and ask questions. So my teachers on the job have been like Robert Friedman, who's a, one of the greatest of vocal arrangers and music arrangers. He's got multiple Grammys. He passed away. But he started Berkeley, and he had done uh, music for Chanticleer. He had done all their arrangements, and he was great. And he hired me with Bob Dill with uh, Bert, uh, Harry Belfonte. So I learned from him on the job where he's writing orchestra arrangements on the plane without even knowing. I said, how do you know it's going to sound like? It'll sound great. And, and so him and Howard Roberts and Greg Cormier and, and all these great teachers, Bert Bacharach, to work with Bert 15 years and get paid is like getting paid to go to school. So those have been my teachers. And my teaching is more of uh, music, music appreciation and just uh, basic concepts. I mean, you have a beautiful voice. I, you could teach me all day and I would, I can sing better now. I can sing in, at, in church. I was singing in the choir and they said, your picture is really good. So just learning how to find the place of your voice. Sure. Up. I loved it. It was great. So I'm a better producer from that because at least if I sing to somebody, they have an idea. I don't have to go to the piano and play it. So it helps. But um, I think my experiences with so many different styles and people, I can impart more of a way to approach things so that if you want to be a trombone player, I can just tell you, listen to everything and listen to all. You don't have to just listen to the great trombone players. You can listen to different kinds of music and find your voice. And sure. so that, I think, is my gift that I can share as opposed to you can play. I mean, the guys who are just great guitar teachers, great guitar players, and they're better at that than I would be. But I've, you know, I've had such a great um, wide experience i think that would be something that i could share right yeah i i use the same approach too with my students like for instance i learned most the best lesson i learned about phrasing mm -hmm. was from miles was from miles davis mm -hmm. and the way that he phrased a line um he did it in such a beautifully vocal way in my perception um so i understand what you're saying i want to ask you I, I after all these years of knowing you i don't know if i've we've ever talked about the first time you picked up a guitar why did you do it and how did it go? What was? How did you get into this whole thing? Where I mean, did you come from? Did you come from a musical family? I know that your I know that your sister is a photographer. Yeah. Um, but there are no other musicians in your in no, your immediate house. No, my household. father, my father has one note. <laughs> you know, he, he loves music. He likes the whole thing about it, but he doesn't know. Like if I play things for him, he doesn't really um, know what he's listening to. He just sure. likes it. Whereas my wife. Uh, 
uh, father, who is a, um, he's a PhD professor back in Ohio, teaches in college. And he's also, he used to be a DJ. So I'd play it for him. He listens, he's like, play it back. I love that little guitar riff there. How'd you come up with that horn part that plays there? He hears everything. He's got zillions of records. I mean, his record collection goes from 25 Jethro Tull records. He loves Bob Dylan. So he, he's just so eclectic in his taste. And so he can really hear. And so I love going and playing music for him. He's, he's great. He just like, oh, when did you get that bell? Play it, go back and play it. He'll like listen really close and go back and hear things. So that's cool. It's like playing it for you or something. So, um, but my mom, she was a uh, artist and she loved arts. She was just in love with arts. They did theater, she directed, but not a musician. So my dad bought her a guitar. And so she was taking guitar lessons and I just picked up her guitar and uh, it was it was acoustic guitar. And this is uh, 13 and Led Zeppelin, all these groups are out. So I said, well, this is too big. So I literally took a jigsaw and I cut her guitar in half, took the back and glued it back on so it was thinner. <laughs> and then I took an old transistor radio. It was acoustic and, you know, I knew electronics. So if you take the speaker, speaker can also be a microphone. You can sing into your headphone. So I took the speaker out of my old transistor radio, stuck it into her acoustic guitar, ran the wire out, plugged it into the stereo. I got an electric guitar. And it was like, this is done in a day. And it's like, they came back, it's like, you cut your mother's guitar. <laughs> and yeah, not only that, I took the guitar, then I stood on their coffee table with my boots with taps on. <laughs> so I could see myself in the mirror playing the guitar and scratched up the table, took the guitar in half. And so luckily they didn't send me to military school or anything. <laughs> and so, you know, all of us, I'm not sure exactly how far apart we are in age, but anybody that saw the Beatles when they went on at Sullivan, which the 50th anniversary was just, I think, two weeks ago, anybody who saw that, any kid, I was 10 in 63, and I was like, I want to do that. I'll get girls, and I'll be, you know, I'll make a lot of You're money. Popular, yeah, cool. right. Yeah, you know, so if I could sing, it would have been great. I started writing songs, I just, you know, uh, God didn't give me a gift of voice, you know, like like you you have, you have the voce, Bueno, solo bueno, you know, soto bueno. So, but how did um, you, I mean, how did you start learning chords and did you take guitar lessons? Did you take over your mom's guitar lessons? Did you just listen to music and try and copy it on the guitar? What did you, how did you learn? I learned, uh, the first song I learned was probably Wipeout. Because you sure. played Sure, that, that was uh, 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 Dick Dale. Was that Dick Dale and the Deltones? Who was that? No, Wipeout was Safaris. Safaris oh, uh -huh, video. Uh -huh. Uh huh. Sure. But the thing was, it had that drum. Doo -doo 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 -doo. That's how I learned how to play the drums. As a matter of fact, was that song. Sure. Wipeout was cool. Like that. But then the second one, which is everybody's first. Sure. Sure. So that yeah. So I. I just started picking up. I had a guitar teacher that my parents got me. He was really cool. He was a uh, really a shop teacher at school, but he played. He was a he came from that Lenny Frank thing, but he had studied. But he wasn't like a professional, but he knew enough to teach. And so they would teach you uh, like five songs because they figured if your parents are paying for lessons, they should see something. So he had a thing called the act. Lenny sure. Frank came up with this, and so they gave you songs to play that you can play. Uh, Dawn that dream. You know, and then you would learn this song 
And then the last one was um, Malaguena, right? If you play it all. That's uh... Malaguena. Is that that one? Is it that one? Right. The whole thing, and right. then if the thing was get your ass out of the room, right? You had no <laughs> encore, you know. And so it was funny because I produced Trini Lopez, and he did a whole ten minutes Malaguena Solarosa or something, and it went on and on and on and on. But it was very. It's like wow, my first uh, teacher showed me those. So I I passed him, and so I went past what he knew, and he was like, I can't teach you anymore. You need to go to somebody else. So I went to Ethan, was who was Lenny Frank's uh, student. And, um, so I'm sorry to started, interrupt. Were you just were you just learning everything by rote at that time, or were, I just started, or were, I mean, I started picking things up. I mean, nobody uh -huh. had to teach me how to play the guitar. I just started figuring it out. But because you know, I saw every there was so much music around in Long Island where I grew up back in those days in New York. Every block you'd have a garage open, there'd be a band in there. So everybody was playing, and um, just the guys that I first saw, James Brown. I love James Brown and all that R and B from down in Memphis. You know, the soul man, all that. Sure. All that kind of stuff. All that music was there. And then there was, you know, um, there was the R&B stuff. There was the pop stuff. There was just so much music on the radio. Bread, and just just everywhere. The Beatles stuff, obviously, and the Rolling Stones. And then, like, on pop music radio, you would have Sugar. Sure. <laughs> So everywhere was like that. So guitar was everywhere. And just you could just pick the stuff up. So I had the ability to uh, pick it up, but I, I didn't know uh, really what I was doing. But I was, you know, I could play and we made a band. The first band we made was um, we did all Grand Funk Railroad songs, which was, uh, let me see. Uh, um, uh, it, uh, I'm your captain. That guy sings great. So, sure. Um, we did all that stuff. We did a couple other things. So I got, you know, I was playing. And, and once I decided I wanted to play music, then I just gave up everything else and just started practicing. And I would practice like eight hours and just keep figuring things out and figuring things out and working on it. And by the time I got to uh, 12th grade, I was like, I forget about school. You know, I failed music in school. Because of my, I went in and I said, um, are we going to learn arranging and my music appreciation? And she totally used me as a whipping post for the rest of the class. <laughs> and she said, you don't know anything. You've never studied anything. You don't know, how are you going to do you know, arranging? How can you arrange? And I went back to my teacher. She said, don't worry about it. I'll teach you arranging. And so um, I just I kept mean, learning that, and they kept asking. Did that I stick with you? Did that stick with you? Was that an injury that stuck with you? Or did you just brush it off at the time? Or did you feel like you had something to prove? No, no, I felt that um, I didn't want to. I felt that it was my mission to not be that and oh. to not be a frustrated um, musician who was teaching and to impart that kind of arrogance on you can't. I mean, you can't. How can you tell somebody you can't? I mean, how many, what was his name, um, um, who wrote all those um, God Bless America, The Grand Old Flag? He only played in one key. Um, he wrote, uh, not Fudd Foster, uh, uh, Famous uh, songwriter. And sure. He, Are um, you talking about 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 Foster? Yes. Was it yes? Stephen Foster? No. Yeah, Stephen. Is it Stephen Foster? Piano. He played the piano. And he, he played in. His piano was 
he had a thing where he could flip the piano and go a half step up. Oh, this is embarrassing. I don't know. Yeah, popular songwriter like you know, um, in the, the Navy, in the Navy, like all these You're great type, songs he sings. Yeah, right, right. Um, um, so he only, uh, you know, the guy, one of the greatest songwriters ever from uh, New York. Um, uh, I don't oh, know. Yeah. They featured in even Broad, Boardwalk uh, Empire had him as a character in there. Yeah. What, he, what were some of the other songs that he wrote? Um. You're a grand old flag. He did Broadway shows. He did a whole review of all his songs. Not Stephen Foster, but. Uh, uh, let's say George Cohan. No. Uh, uh, yeah, that's what that says, written by George M. Cohen. Um, oh, in one key, I think it was. You, you know, if we say the name, we're going to be like, oh, yeah, of course, that guy, you know, one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Uh, songwriters, <laughs> right. you, yeah, uh, type, type songwriters, 1920s, <laughs> songwriters, songwriters, Jewish songwriters, white Jewish songwriters. Uh, um, Billy Murray? No. no. Songwriters Hall of Fame. It's going to be, uh, who it's is not, in the Songwriters Hall of you're Fame? Not talking about, you're not talking about John Philip Sousa, are you? No. No, no, no. That's Sousa marches. No. And see, this is only popular stuff, but this is somebody from the 20s. Hey. Hey, Siri, songwriter from the 20s who wrote uh, many popular songs. How are you doing on your side? Terribly. I'm going to have to find this quickly. Let's see. Uh, timeline of music in the United States. Popular songwriters in the great American Harold Arlen, uh, Sammy Kahn. No, no, we're past that. Let's see. Um, 1920s. American songwriter, 1920s. Irving Berlin. Cold, Irving Berlin. No, Irving Berlin. Yeah, only playing no one way. key. No that's way. it. That's the one. Yeah. Irving Berlin. That's it. Really? Irving Berlin. He wrote all those songs and he can only play it's in one key. So he had a thing on his piano where he could raise up a half step. It's like Little Richard. Little Richard only can play in the key of G. And I know this because my friends in Canada. He was an engineer at a studio work with Bachman Turner Overdrive, and they had a song they wanted Little Richard to play on. So they recorded the song in A, brought Little Richard up to Toronto. He listened, he goes, I can't play that. I only play in G. So they had to cut everything again. So some, so some people, you'd be surprised. Bo Diddley? Sure. So Bo Diddley only played in G, and he put a capo on. So he couldn't do this. So he only knew the fingering for, you know, the E. So he just put the capo there and played uh, Hey Bo Diddley. That was his thing. That was the whole thing. So everything was in G, but he could only uh, do one fingering stop. <laughs> it's so, that is so funny. You know, in, in, in the education that I got, that kind of, that kind of thing, I don't know, it's, it's just looked down upon. It's like, it's like they're taught, we're taught that the people like that are just hacks. But then that attitude prevents so many people with, proper you know collegiate or conservatory educations from being not only successful but from being fulfilled mm -hmm. it, it, i had this conversation with somebody yesterday and that I, I feel like that type of education creates this sense of perfectionism that's unattainable and then you yes. lose out you lose out on just the joy of making music because you don't understand it well enough or you don't think you're good enough or you don't know how to dissect the chords and chord structures and diagrams and 
a counterpoint and the Palestine, you know, you're writing in parallel fifths now, blah, blah, blah. And it's just no mm -hmm. good. And I, I, that's the one thing that I've found that music education is, can be not is, but can be guilty of in this country and perhaps other countries. I'm not sure. So I'm glad to, to know that, uh, there are plenty of very well-known people out there that make great livings and have tons of fun and get over the fact that some people might not think they're serious musicians. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to school. I mean, I went to high school, but I didn't go to music school at all. I didn't go to college. So for me, when I was teaching at UCLA, I said, this is so great. I didn't go to college and I'm teaching and that they want to give me a music school in China that would, you know, here's a person who is self-taught and taught, if I said not self-taught, but, you know, sitting with Bert Bacharach and sure. watching him score things and how do you do that? And so that my teachers just sit there with Lalo Schifrin, what are you doing? is uh, pretty cool. I've had such great teachers. And so it was my responsibility to take advantage of my time with them and to learn from them. And even, you know, sitting with you, right, with Gila, Plitman, and people like that who are just so, you know, at, um, masters at their craft and to just say, how do you do that? You know, I mean, um, when you're sitting in the studio with somebody who's worked with Buddy Rich and it's like, how do you do that? How did this happen? And how did you make this kind of sound? And, have, you know, Al Schmidt and engineers and Phil Ramone and just great people. If you ask them questions, uh, they will, like myself, if, Luke, if somebody young asked me, I'll go off for 20 minutes with an explanation that's probably way past what they needed to know. But sometimes I remember things that I learned when I was 15 that now at 100 years old make sense to me. I'll like wake up and I'll say, oh, I, I know what that is now. So I hope that if I'm talking to somebody and they don't have to be a kid, they may be young in their experience. So, right. you know, young in age, young experience. And so I try to explain it so they'll understand it and not speak above them and not be arrogant about it because the information is not mine. I'm just passing it on anyway. Um, but Well, that's one of the things I love the most about you, Ted, and working with you and knowing you is that you're um, obviously a a real master of what you do but at uh, but in a in a separate category you're also so full of joy about what you do mm -hmm. and you're mm -hmm. so open to sharing what you do and how you do it and there's a real sense of um fraternity in working with mm -hmm. you that i really mm -hmm. miss um and i uh i don't know i i think that you're you're uh, somebody that i really look up to and and feeling in feeling the the way that you do about music i really do envy that and part of me is kind of um especially over this last year that i you know i haven't sung professionally since what what's the date today the 25th right around this time last year was the last uh mm -hmm. thing i did at la opera as the last show we had to cut the rest of the season short um and i've noticed that uh, the thing that i miss the most about singing are the people um, and the people in the business who um, are all of my friends, and I include you in that in that um, group. And I, I don't know. I just wanted to tell you, I really admire the the enthusiasm that you have about music. And I wanted to ask you about how you've gotten through this last year. What have you, what have you done to? I mean, I know since I've seen you, you've gotten married. Um, you also have. It seems like you're in a new place that I haven't seen before. This has been the, uh, the best year of my life, 2020, seriously. Um, uh, I met my wife, we were going to Fuller Seminary. We were in the same class together. And so my wife is really interesting because 
she's not from the music business. And so before when I'd meet people, it'd be like, I thought who I was, was who I worked with. Like you said, who, what'd you do? That was me, right? With her, she didn't really care about who I worked with. It was like, okay, that's nice. You know, who are you? And so that was the first time I'd ever uh, met somebody that didn't care about my resume. They just cared about how I treated people, how I treated her, and um, this just whole different way of looking at things. So it really, you know, made me think about I'm I'm not what I do. It's, it's who I am, and that made me. Um, she's really had a big impact on me on how I approach people. She's a great listener, which is something that has nothing on my uh, you know strengths or whatever. She just can like listen. She really listens, not to talk, but she listens to listen. So she's really taught me uh, so much. And she's, um, I said she's younger than me, so she brings a, um, she makes me feel younger, and it's kind of like a second, um, you know, chance at life. And um, that's you know, and so I met her in that, and um, then where I was living, it wasn't didn't feel safe to me there, because uh, I was I had roommates and nobody was really taking precautions, masking or anything. So she was living with this lady whose house we're in. And um, when the pandemic hit, I just started staying over here. We weren't married yet, but there was another room and I started staying over here and I was, you know, all my work has been online, most of it, because I couldn't go to the studio. So I've been producing music for um, China. There's a couple of churches in China, I do music for them. And, you know, I'll do the track, send it to them, do the vocals, send it back to me. I can record, I have software that I can record somebody like you, I can record you there as if we're in the studio together. It's in real time and I can do the effects, stop punching and whatever like that. It's called, you know, it's, it's totally cool from Steinberg and it's like a virtual studio, but you're, um, you're virtual uh, connect, virtual connect. And so you can be singing and there's no delay. You put your headphones on. All you need is just like you log into a Zoom session, but we log into uh, Nuendo or Cubase, the software session. So you're singing there. You can listen to it. I can play it back for you. Compression, reverb, the whole entire bit is going right into my computer. And it's just right through as long as you have a good Wi-Fi connection. Wow. So that's great. So I've been doing work like that. I added um, music to stuff that was in Tokyo for somebody over there. And I've been um, recording and mixing a lot of stuff like online. So the internet here is really fast. So I can stay here and work around the world and work. There's a studio I've been working at out in uh, Covina that they've just started up. So I've done a lot of uh, independent bands over there. And I said, so the, the, the uh, pandemic, when it hit, it was like, great. I just kept working. So I've actually worked more than I was working before. So wow. I, hit, I feel so guilty because uh, people say, oh, it's been so horrible. It's like, this is the best year of my life. I got married when I thought I would never... I thought I'd be by myself the rest of my life. And I, you know, as you know, I went through this terrible divorce and all of that. So this was just like unexpected. And um, I know, no, I don't, I'm sorry, preaching or anything like that, but I'm really uh, grateful that uh, sure. God gave me a second chance. And so she's a chaplain. And so she's not in the music business at all, but she deals with people. She's very compassionate. And um, we both had COVID back in November. From how, the band how, I was working. How was that? I mean, did, did was it terrible or did was it okay no, for you guys? I feel guilty with that too. It was nothing. We had Good. no symptoms. Everybody, Good. I knew people who died. Trini Lopez, I was finishing his last album. All these Sinatra songs done. 
And yeah. he, at the end of it, he said, oh, I have to go to the hospital or something. I don't feel so good. He came home. He didn't feel good. And he was gone three days. Uh, Boom. Unreal. And so I was working with a band and uh, this great band, a Brazilian singer and a Spanish rock band. And so we were in the studio and everybody was really separated really well, 20 feet apart, masked on and everything. And singer came in, she was coughing and sneezing. She said, I have allergies. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, no problem. Last time I saw her, she was sneezing too. So like six months earlier. So anyway, um, got my mask on and we had done every precaution. I'm spraying everything down. We're wiping down the food from, we come up to Trader Joe's, 20 mm -hmm. minutes cleaning everything. So she had to adjust the mic. So I got up without thinking about it, without the mask on, right in front of her, adjusted the microphone. And then two days later, she said, I got tested, I'm positive. You should go get tested. The whole band got it. And so I came home. So Sun Men bring their wife home flowers. I brought my wife home COVID. So, I mean, it's like but, measles. It's like if anybody in the room has it, it doesn't matter yeah. how far away you are. It's so contagious. It's crazy. Yeah, especially I walked right in front of her when she was singing to just the mic. So, uh, but I said we had no symptoms and nothing. And so after two weeks, we were, you know, okay. And funny, the lady that we lived with in her house, she didn't get it. We were around her. She didn't get it at all. And um, my wife's father had it a couple of weeks ago. And his wife, you know, her mother didn't get anything. So I can't figure it out. So we're, you know, okay. And in China, I told my, I just talked to them uh, yesterday and they said, we probably won't be able to do any concerts, but maybe in June, they said the, the, uh, the political climate between the two countries now has really calmed down because our last president, he whose name shall not be mentioned, right? Really. Um, yeah. Started a trade left. war. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't even get visas for anything because the counselor, everybody from every other country around the world could get into China except the U.S. because he started the trade war, and that affected my business there. And so my whole, there was a $100,000 deposit sent. It's like a million-dollar concert, and all of a sudden everything comes to a halt because of that. And then the, the pandemic hit. So um, my partners over there wrote me yesterday, and they said uh, the climate is much nicer. And so hopefully around June, we'll be able to start doing, working on the music education part. I don't know when we'll get the concert thing going, but... Uh, that's a good sign. So, and, the, and that's happy. in Shanghai. The, the 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 Shanghai, yeah, in Shanghai. Shanghai, uh -huh. yeah. That's where we're based out of there. But previously, I'd been to like uh, Hangzhou and uh, um, the different cities around the uh, mm -hmm. country. So mm -hmm. it was just nice to get a feel of the country. As um, the first time I was there, I was meeting more with people from the government, so you kind of insulated. And I would go out in the daytime, but you're only seeing. The head of the communist party in this the city best and, of the you know, stuff yeah uh -huh. yeah and we sit there and then we were all about a round table with flags and everything like that so i really was only seeing those people i did a song one of the government officials told me he loved uh, scarborough fair so i made an arranged instrumental version for him of scarborough fair which was cool but so the second time i got to see more people and i met with officials in shanghai and they said where in the city would you like uh offices to be and they were really supportive so it was kind of really frustrating, but COVID not only hit COVID stopped fries. I mean, with all the things happening, I know it's lost, crazy. Yeah, that's personal, like a person to lose a store that everything that I got came from fries. You yeah. know, any technical goodie, whether it's your computer, your software, your coffee pot, your air conditioner, your anything, and it's like losing a member of your family. So, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's hard, but I'm I'm glad that. I can still, you know, talk to you. I'm glad you're still in my life. You, I, I talk about you all the time because you approach things here. 
you're an opera singer and you're not snotty, you're not arrogant, and you just love music. And the way you learn music and the way you told me that you came in from Santa Monica College and sure. the way you went in, it wasn't something you were aiming at doing, but you know, it was like, oh, I have this voice. I didn't know I could sing. And it's, you're like my friend Don LaFontaine, who um, the voiceover guy, he had done all the movie trails in a world. Sure. And he told me, he just, at like 13 years old, his voice went from, how am I going to go to this store? And it just <laughs> dropped like that. So I love these stories of people who thought they were on one path and they suddenly ended up on another path. And they turned out to be really good at that. And it wasn't what they were starting to do. So you, I talk about you all the time because you're such an inspiration that it's like, oh, okay, so I'm going to be a singer now. And not only that, I'm going to be a great singer. I'm going to be one of the world's best singers. And you just have such a joy about it. And you're not, even though you do things in opera, if, you know, you love heavy metal, you love rock, you like hip hop, you like jazz, you like you, Billy Idol, Lady Gaga, anybody, sure. you're just so open to music. And that's the joy and openness that I think music should be for everybody. And that's what I want to uh, teach in school. Yeah, I think I that, you know, I've always thought that that's one of the secrets of life um, is that when I don't even know, I don't even want to say when opportunity knocks because it's not opportunity. I, I, I would say when curiosity knocks, you should mm -hmm. you should open the door. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that life that a, a happy life is a great combination of of constancy and change. It's it's mm -hmm. it's both of those things put together like you have a, a wife and a place and things that are um, solid and like a home base, but then you have, you give yourself, I give myself a long enough leash to, and I'm with somebody who allows, allows me that and is okay with me starting a pot, you know, two years ago, three years ago, let's see, 18. So three years ago, I started a podcast. I'd never owned a microphone before. I'd never been a host of anything before. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about anything. And I, I'm still learning. That's not that I'm a, a genius at it or master at it, but I enjoy it. And I think, um, you know, being open to, to new things, like you going to seminary, like you going from Judaism to Christianity, like you uh, leaving, leaving one life behind entirely, like with your last wife, your first wife, and that life that you left behind in the middle of the night to get out of a bad situation. And now you find yourself in this situation could not have happened without um, being open to a possibility and to... Uh, you know, experience. And uh, anyway, I don't know. I'm not going anywhere change. with it. No, yeah, no, change. That change, change. That's what I love about Barack, you know, change, you know, I, th that change for any of us in our life, no matter where we are on our life's journey is you have to be open to that because it's, you coming, know, no matter that, what there's a line John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans, which is my favorite line from Mr. Holland's opus when they said that. And it's such a great line because you have no idea what's coming tomorrow. Yeah. And if you sit there and say, well, I'm going to be, you know, look at you. First of all, you're great at the podcast because you're better looking than half the people you're interviewing, <laughs> right? Which is, you know, and especially in the visual medium, the first time I met with you was just audio, right? you know? So you have a great uh, speaking voice and, and you're a great listener and you really, you know, you're better than half the people who have talk shows on TV because sometimes they're just trying to make their point. They don't even let their guests even speak. You know, so you're, you you know, you are just a great person. And I used to look at you and your wife when I first met you. And I said, man, it would be great to have that because you have such a great relationship and it's open and it's communication and you support each other. And 
So I was like, wow, I, that was that's like you you were one of the couples that I looked at and said it would be great. I didn't think it was possible. So now I said I have like that kind of relationship. I said, oh man, I'm like beyond happy. I don't there's not even a word to describe how I feel. Why didn't you, know? you think it was possible? What because I just figured I'd failed after such a long relationship, you know, and so I said maybe I'm just not uh, meant to be like that, you know. There's some people that are just, you know, meant to be alone. I sound like, uh, what is it, Greta Garbo? I want to be alone. <laughs> but um, I just figured that was it. So I was like, okay. And I really took that five-year period from 2014 to 19. I mean, I met Emily in school, and our first date was April 13, 2019, which we celebrate literally every week. Was it that and, period of self-exploration that really opened you up to being available for that kind of thing? Or I don't know if it was opened me up, but I was just working on myself. I had a lot of uh, things to fix in myself, things mm -hmm. the way I thought about, the way I dealt with people, the way I dealt with me. And so um, getting healthy again and just working on um, things that maybe come naturally to you that didn't come naturally to me. I was oh. just so obsessed. I was just I've made lots of terrible, terrible mistakes in my life too, and I've done the same thing, Ted. It's you know, I just put, I just stand up straight and smile. That's my secret. Okay, I thought music was God, <laughs> you know, and whatever you know, I, people. I mean, I know people that um, I have close friends who don't have, you know, don't believe in God. I have close friends that are agnostic, we're kind of like in the middle. Yeah, so I mean, and I, ha I have great relationships with them because it, even in uh, religion, and same thing with music, people are like. Well, I know this and I know that, right? So, having gone to seminary, one of the one of the best things I learned there is to not say, "I went to seminary," as if I know something you don't know, and I know God, you don't know God, because I know Native Americans that believe in the spirit of everything around, which is totally okay for me, right? And so, if you're open to that, I can have conversations with people who have no uh, religious beliefs, and I can have conversations with people whose religious beliefs are so. Uh, you know, intertwined with their whole life like that. And so music, I just thought music was God. And that's a bad place to be because music is whatever you worship, whatever you are grateful for in the morning, um, you just have to realize that people are more important than um, something you do for your living. You yeah. know, in people relationships and your relationship with the people around, when you, when we leave this planet, what's the most important thing is, is how did you make other people feel? And, and that's that, right. you know, that's what Maya Angelou said, right? It's a famous quote of hers that people don't Maya remember. Angelou, yeah, it's great. Yeah, people don't remember what you said, but they remember how you made them feel. Yeah, that's it. That's the most, uh, you know, to be grateful for and to, you know, I mean, I had gone, um, I had gone to, uh, I went to Scientology for two years, right? Not, that I don't want to go off of that because that's another conversation. But yeah, yeah, I took, I took these intro courses that really helped me communication and skills and and things, and so. Other people may have gone further and they may get into darker areas, but it was really positive for me. Mm -hmm, a lot of mm -hmm. the uh, things about talking and listening, you know, you can find those concepts that L. Ron Hubbard put in there the same way you can find in the book of James. It said, be um, quick to listen, uh, slow to anger, slow to speak. And so those same communication things, I had no skills. In. So I happened to get them from my two years there or from seminary. I was literally going to seminary and Celebrity Center at the same yeah, I time. Remember. So I, the, I remember. I'm at Celebrity yeah. Center with Stanley Clark, Mark Isham, Beck's father, David Campbell.
Nancy Cartwright, those Bart Simpson. I'm with these very cool people. And so everybody's kind of getting something that they needed out of it. And so I know there's been a lot of things, you know, people said that it went darker or something, but for me, uh, the level sure. I was at, it really helped me communicate. So I don't think I would have been able to um, have the relationship I had with Emily until I had learned those things there, which were communication skills. So, you know, if you, if you get it at school, if you get it at church, if you get it there, wherever you learn, just to realize that you need help. And if you have a need to learn something, uh, get help. You know, well, whether when you were little, when you were a, a child, what, were you, was your family basically non-demonstrative? Did you not talk around the dinner table? Did you not have frank conversations <laughs> about difficult yeah. things like sexuality and religion and politics and all that stuff? Is that something that didn't happen when you were a kid? No, no that was not my family, you know, but um, uh, Jewish uh, family in New York, but no religion house, you know, like uh, kind of like we're Jewish, but we don't talk about it. You know, we go to synagogue one day a year for, you know, sure. Rosh Hashanah or something. And so the conversation, communication in my house was kind of like non-existent. It was like my dad was, the, you know, the patriarchal figure. Nobody, you know, goes against dad. And then when I got into high school and I started getting into, I became very uh, left wing and, you know, against the Vietnam War. And I worked for Eugene McCarthy, who was like a real left wing candidate. And so we were like, the war is bad. The war has got to stop. And my father, the ex-Marine, the conversation, conversation at the table would be, the war's bad. We got to get into Vietnam. Shut up. We don't have to talk about our country. We're, you know, like that. And it would get into fistfights. My father didn't, uh, had no communication skills. He was a great actor, but in his personal life, his communication skills were just, he didn't know how to be a great dad. He sure. had no training. His father was a really bad dad. And he, was, his, he thought just being, uh, support the family and take care of everybody. That's it. You're a great dad. And so, I, I kind of like was afraid to uh, discuss things because it was against his opinion. It either was like a yelling, screaming, or it could be, you know, a violent thing or something. And so, um, and then with my ex-wife, it was the same kind of relationship sometimes, you know, it was like- Well, that know, makes sense, again. right? You sought out you sought out what, what was comfortable yeah. for you, yeah, at least subconsciously. Yeah. Mom. yeah, so um, so I had no communication skill because music was so, uh, had been so good to me that I could just, oh, you can play if you're a butthead or something, who cares? You know, you can play the guitar. You can make me sound good in the studio. And if you're kind of like arrogant, you know, okay, fine. That comes along with it. So I found myself after my marriage, like I'm on my own and it's like, you know, I can't just rely on that. I can do music. I need to fix me. So I'm more a complete person. Not everything was unequal, you know? So I needed to get my, my personal part of me up to where my music was. Music was here. And, you know, I was kind of like, uh, can I say dickhead on the, you, certainly can. you know, yeah, that would be the best description. Not, not really bad or anything, just narcissistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Narcissistic. So, you know, people come in, I'd work with them and they'd say, I want to do something like this. And I'd be like, well, no, no, I, I know this is better. This is best for you, blah, blah, blah. And so instead of being gentle about it, I was kind of like, no, nah, no, nah, be quiet and do it. So a lot of times it'd be like, wow, that does sound great. And I could get away with it. And even with people like Baccarat, it's like, tell you one this, oh, this is cool. Okay, that sounds good, you know? But you have, every situation is different. So having better communication skills, um, it's like Rob Lowe in Wayne's World, when the guy was saying, I want to do this with the kids. He was like, you're right, that's great. And they ended up doing what they want to do anyway. Right. Just how, how to communicate. Some people 
naturally have that and some people need to learn it so did you did you ever reconcile the relationship with your father and how did you get through the trump years if he's a right-wing ex-marine who uh you know stomps stomps his so commu communication like um what i learned at celebrity center is like find a common uh thread that you can talk about that you know and so they had a, a course of all the problems at work and so it was like, look at your bosses. Like you see a picture of him playing golf. Now you have a way to communicate with him, find something like that. So my dad, nobody in the family was talking to him because he was supporting Donald Trump and everybody in the family hated Donald Trump. So I started finding a way. I'd worked for Donald Trump back in 88, so I had a place to start. And so I just found things about Donald Trump that might be positive, although <laughs> my, Slim my, my, wife, my wife would throw things and you know just like throw up right now because yeah. she didn't find anything good but i said well the economy's doing really good and this and that and people are like oh no you know like so at least i had some kind of common ground and my father and i's relationship is really great now it wasn't before i just had to learn to communicate with him and try nobody's gonna win just how can i um be a good son for him and you know he's 93 92 now so, you know, he's not going to change the way he approaches things. And so um, I just, it was more me. Once I worked on me, I was able to communicate with him and to not do it like that kind of thing. So my father's good practice into dealing with people at work or anything like that. If you practice on him and you can deal with him and he loves Emily. I mean, he's just, you know, in love with Emily. He, it, it really made him softer. You know, he yeah, never thought I'd be married. He was at the wedding. Might, he, he came to the wedding. It must be nice for him, right? To, it must be nice for you to feel like your father is is happy and proud of the place you are in life, which may not have come yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, at this point in my life, he just was uh, so surprised. He used to call me up every week and he'd say, are you seeing anybody? And I'd say, no, dad, leave me alone. You know, I'm 60 years old, whatever. I'm not going to see anybody. No, no, no. You're a young man, 25 years younger than him. So. I said, no, stop asking me that every week. Are you seeing somebody? So when I met Emily, I called him up and said, ask me the question. I said, what question? This question asked me every week. Are you seeing somebody? Are you seeing, yes. <laughs> I was like, yeah. You know, I met somebody wonderful. And he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I never expected that. And so our wedding, in the middle of COVID, we got married in uh, September of 2020, right? I mean, right in the middle of, you know, everything was Yeah, the kind. resurgence, right. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so... We had it, this place that held 250 people back in Akron, Ohio. And we could only have, we only had 40 people there. So my dad came and it was great. He came up there. He said, I don't care. I'm coming anyway. And uh, everybody was masked and separated. Uh, but still, it was, it was just wonderful. And even Emily loves hot air balloons. So she got a lady to come open up a hot air balloon. The place was huge. It was just huge uh, area and just beautiful. So it was, it was a great wedding and just my friend who's a pastor came in from Washington and I played uh, natural woman. I played natural woman to her and then she, uh, we, everybody in the place sang together on that, you know, and even though it's not saying the word, you should make me feel like a natural woman, but natural woman just, it was such a great song that we loved. So like you, uh, like you and your wife sang when we did that wedding. In, yeah, uh, for yeah. Yeah. For her brother. Yeah. Yeah. For her brother. We sang Chris. the Ed Sheeran song. That yeah. was great. So. I said, yeah. I wanted to be just, I want to be just like you. you know? <laughs> well, I feel the same way, Ted. Maybe that's why we we became such fast friends. Uh, and Emily can't sing, 
we we sing all the time and neither one of us could sing so it's great <laughs> you know we, we sing well, notes together that don't it's like the notes are not even the same note but we just sing it's beautiful it seems like you guys uh when you i mean was it love at first sight it seemed like a pretty fast thing a pretty precipitous marriage yeah i we went out i said she came up to me in class and she walked over and said hi held my hand said hi i'm emily and my hand like was lit up with lights and stuff and i was like what and i said i was terrified because i thought she was 27 right so i mean you know um at that point i was 65 and you know i was like oh my god she's 27 years old she's so cute but who is it and then i asked her out and uh we went out to a first date and <clears throat> on our first date my communication skills are so good that I basically tell her everything in my entire life <laughs> in this one period. She's listening like that. And I said, I, I told everything. And then she says, uh, how old are you? And I said, uh, you're not going to go out with me anymore if I tell you how old I am. She said, no, go ahead and tell me. I said, well, I'm 65. And so she turned out to be 41 at the time. And I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I said, okay. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, still 25 years. But um, literally, and I'd started out the conversation saying, I'm never going to get married again. And that was it. At the end of the night, I asked her to marry me on the first date, literally. And, and um, we never stopped seeing each other. I saw her every day after that until now. Really? And when, really, seriously. I mean, went out again the second night. I mean, I asked her to marry me five times until she finally said yes. Later on, I mean, we were going out for over a year before we got married. But I knew uh, that was, I said, I met, this is the one that I should have, I mean, I told her, I wish I met you when I was uh, 40, but that would have meant that, um, or 40 when I was 20. That means I would have, no, 20, I was 30. 30, I would have showed her for the house. She would be five years old, right? It's like, <laughs> I am here to pick up Emily. And I'm you, you know? Oh, Emily and I, I saw it in a vision. We're going to be in love with this again, you know? And it's like there's a father gets his gun and shoots me off the front porch. You know? you know, so things happen when they're supposed to happen. And so even though I said, um, she says, I wouldn't have liked you before. So, it, you know, I said, the it's way timing, I am right? now. It's timing. It's timing and who I am. So, you know, even on, on this, this conversation, so I was talking to her about what do you think that I should talk about? You know, because normally I would just talk about, I work with this one. I have a list of a zillion Oh, you mean people. about today? You mean about today, yeah, about our today. conversation? Yeah. Yeah. So I, what do I want to um, people to remember? And so I could list, you know, I was like, I got Calabro. I got, you know, that British group of one, uh, Britain's Got Talent, where my student, great singers, you would love them. The five guys. And I had like all these people. But she said, speak from your heart and talk about who you're becoming, not your resume. And so that was, um, you know, what I was really uh, trying to do because, you know, lots of people have resumes and um, I'm blessed that I've worked with all these great people, but the people that I have a relationship with like yourself are more important. You know, you're a better person than uh, I can list a big name uh, artist who's got just won the Pulitzer Prize and all that stuff like that. But as a person, you supersede him as a person because of the way you make other people feel. Oh, and so God. so that's you get me all ch choked up over here. No, it's because really, that's, really what's sweet. that's what's important. You know, you have a zillion people, famous people you've worked with in movies and all of that. But is that who uh, you know Omar is? No, Omar right. Crook is a man who makes people that are around him feel really good. You know, oh, so thanks. Ted. I thank you for that. Thanks. You're my, you're my one of my inspirations. Well, we belong to the mutual ad uh, admiration club, friend, because I feel the same way. I'm so 
pleased about having you again on the show. I just thank I can't you. thank you enough for 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 joining me. And before we go, I want to ask you what do you have coming up? What do you want? Is there anything you want to plug? Let's get to let's um, get to some business. What have you got going? Let me see. We plug well, the guitar, the Luna guitar. Okay, well, so um, Gloria Loring, who I, I produced her album, and we right, worked this on is, this. This is this is Robin Thicke's mother, yeah. Yeah. So well, we started working on it in 2010, and it was stretched out because we weren't working all the time. Kind of like when we started doing Kila, we were right. working out here and there. So we finally got kicked it up a notch, and we finished the album. And it says it, it great. Robin uh, wrote one of the songs, and he's oh. singing on. He's singing on one of the songs. He sounds great. And Gloria, she taught him to sing. So that's why Robin is so great. Gloria's a great singer. So that album is finished. And um, on October, no, it was October. On March 5th, she's going to be on KTLA. And we're going to do a live uh, performance of the Burt Bacharach, Tony O'Kay song. She's going to sing that. So that's, oh, that's, pretty, that's pretty exciting. And the record's great. I'm just happy that it's out. I wrote one of the songs with her, a song about Rise, uh, my Angelo. Um, that one is there. Um, they said the, um, the, I have a couple of, uh, independent rock bands that are out that I've worked with, uh, one called the weirdest name, Mary Carves the Chicken. Oh, right? sure. Page, you know? That's Paige's so, band. Yeah. Page, this Paige's group who actually, yeah, yeah. Paige's the one introduced me to you. Yeah. So we finished their record. It sounds great. California Ride, I think it's called. Terrific. And so, yeah, so I've, um, after fighting with Paige for years about the name of their band, <laughs> Um, they have Third Eye Blind and this one and all kind of stuff. So Foo Fighters, yeah. whatever. Um, I said, keep the name, whatever. So the record came out great. Paige sounded great. And um, I made those guys sound really uh, great. They've been around for a long time. Sure. They were so happy that they bought me, uh, it's not here, an SG Gibson guitar. They gave me this expensive guitar as a gift for my birthday. And like, wow, because I think I got the sound that they've been trying to get for all those years. So yeah. I really um, was happy that I could have their vision in their head come out and they recorded work. Uh, they're great. I did some other things for, um, uh, let me see. Um, it was, I'm in a book. I'm in a book. It's by uh, Thornton Klein. And the book is this hit songwriter book. And it's Burt Bacharach. I brought in Tom Snow, Diane Warren, all these different people did interviews in there. So they did an interview on me where I talked about a lot of the things we're talking about. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with these great songwriters, Jerry Goffin, Carol King, you know, and so Brian Wilson. So what was my experience working with all of them? What common thread tied them together? You know, how insecure Bob Dylan could be when you think he'd have no insecurities. Sure. Um, those, is, that, those, is that out on Amazon or where do you get that? Has it been published already? Yeah, or? I think it's on Amazon. Yeah, it's called... Uh -huh. um, uh, a hit songwriter, um, oh yeah, yeah, I thought and kill me. It's a hit songwriter. Would hit songwriter would be the um, the Google point that the uh, sort of tag. I think it's hit songwriter. Uh, here I'll give it to you. Thank you for Google hit songwriter. I wish I could type <laughs> hit songwriter. <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes you type uh, Thornton Klein here. Thornton. Klein. He's got a lot of children's books and um, Profile of a Hit Songwriter by Lacey Carpenter, Thornton Klein. It looks like that. Terrific. And yep, so perfect. anyway, it, it's out. It's on uh, Center Stream, but there's uh, the people in it are really, really uh, cool. And it's talking. Uh, we did a seminar at NAM on uh, this. The panel was there and the people 
it's just a great book. And I, they featured me in there, in, including the other people, which is cool. Um, that was really cool. Um, some of the, uh, I got a couple of uh, independent bands at the Volte Cabaret, which were all, you know, kind of shut down because of COVID. Sure, but, sure. Uh, I'm starting a project with one of the girls from uh, Wanda D from the KLF. And Wanda D is, um, she was the first female DJ. She goes all the way back to the Bronx with Africa Bambada. And she's awesome. She's a performer. So she performs for hundreds of thousands of people around the world. So we're starting on some other songs with her in a few weeks. Um, they're coming in. So I just, you know. Yeah, you're staying um, busy. Just keep just staying busy. I said, my church group's over in China, still working on. And, um, they, you know, it's just hard for them. I don't want to mention the name because the Chinese government um, stopped certain uh, groups from uh, broadcasting different things like that. So, sure. you know, my relationship with the people in China is really good. But um, some of the people religious wise have had some issues with the uh, government. So, you sure. know, sure. I try to uh, just um, keep a good uh, relationship with um, everybody. Trini yeah. Lopez's record. Uh, came out great and unfortunately at the end of it he passed away but it was uh, the best record he ever made the vocals i mean the vocals were great he did one all or nothing at all he did it like a ballad and he just uh killed it on the first one great and what he a was tragedy, just right? like what a singing tragedy. yeah and he's i said his story is so amazing frank sinatra found him and he became like the biggest selling latin artist ever the beatles were his opening act Mm -hmm. Right, he even turned down the Rolling Stones for his opening act because he thought they were too scruffy because he always dressed nice. And he, he is a guy, it's funny because he was a Republican, and uh, but his family came from Mexico, right? And they were migrant workers who came illegally across the border. And mm -hmm. he grew up as a kid picking peaches as far away as Arkansas. So you would think that he would be more, um, you know, more, uh, what's the word, sympathetic to the, you know, undocumented workers that came here. But you know he and he made it, and he he, made, he supported his family. He bought his parents' houses and stuff, and he became huge. I mean, just like one of the biggest stars in the world, friends with Princess Grace, and there's pictures of Trini with every president you can imagine. So he's a real from nothing to rags to riches story, and so it's just great for all the DACA um, people that are out there. Look, I, I really wanted, and I I so. The record's done, so I started contacting people. I contacted Dave Grohl's manager because Dave Grohl plays the Trini Lopez guitar, mm -hmm. and he always talked. They all wrote the nice things about Trini when he died, and so those guitars were worth like four hundred thousand dollars, the original ones. So I wanted to bring guests onto the album and to make it. They so Dave Grohl's manager said, "What's the purpose of it?" I said, "I think Trini's uh, story is really important for people to know that you can come here. If you came here legally, if that's the way you can get here, fine." And then his parents became citizens. But if you put a wall up, right, right, they wouldn't have been able to come in here to the country. You know, right. So that I think the story of Trini's life is not the multiple Rolls Royces and the famous women they knew, Marilyn Monroe and Bridget Bardot and Natalie Wood. The story is that his family came here with nothing illegally, and yeah. they became legal after. And then Trini became this huge star. It's literally the. I mean, he's the paradigm of the American dream. That really yeah, is the American dream. Yeah, that's what resonates with me. And I talk and to what's Richard legal Trump. and illegal is just a piece of paper. I mean, people coming at the turn of the century came the same way that it's now illegal. It used to be yeah. legal. 
and then it became illegal. But this, the people who are coming are, are of the same quality and of the same ambition and of the same, uh, they all have the same dream. And yeah, that's what the American dream is. I, I totally, I totally that's agree. That's it, you're, you, you, you're, you're a son of immigrants, right? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, my 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 father's Mexican, and you know, so I lived in Mexico when my parents divorced. We were living in Ensenada. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, you know, to be fair, that side of my family is really wealthy, so they just bought they just bought paperwork, <laughs> um, for lack no. of a better uh, term. Um, it doesn't fit the paradigm. Wait, we need a new story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not part of that that story. But I mean, you know, you look at somebody like Steve Jobs, right? I think he came from Syria or something, and he, sure, you know, started Apple. And uh, people who used to be coming here legally are now doing exactly the same thing that they would have done then, but now that's illegal because the process of becoming a citizen is so much more protracted and so much more difficult. And uh, so at that, I don't, I don't care. That's a whole nother conversation. So I, I know I think that's, I think that's important because um, we're well, talking about music or anything like that. It's all part of this American dream, you know, I mean, it's a worldwide musical thing, but there's so many opportunities, you know, Lalo Schiffen came from Argentina. You know, and my grandfather came from Russia. And so I'd work with some of the stories are sad because I worked with a singer named Shusha Paletti. And she was a big singer in Iran. And when Khomeini came in, they who were wealthy had to leave the country and they left everything. And they came, right. they went, they got to London, they didn't have a dime, nothing like that. So, um, but they got to America and they were able to start from kind of like what I did I, when I left my situation. I had nothing. I literally left with not, nothing, not a, not a penny. So you rebuild your life up like that. So coming to America, it gives you the opportunity to, if you come in with money, um, all the better, you know. But it, even if you're an immigrant with money, they won't even respect you if you're from certain uh, groups, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, you have uh, anti-Muslim um, things like mm -hmm. that. You know, you can have all the money in the world. And will you be accepted at the country clubs and all the places you want to be? Saban. Chaim Saban was an Egyptian, uh, I think, Jew who came to America and he ended up with nothing and ended up uh, Saban, who had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They're one of the biggest um, owners of animation and things like they're the mm -hmm. biggest Disney, Saban. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can come here however you get here. My grandfather couldn't walk across the border because Russia, you had to take a boat to come here. But if you're in Mexico and, you you know, the opportunities here, you know, you do look at Haitians come across on the boat to get to here. So, yeah. I who are you going to hire? I mean, I'm going to hire somebody who's willing to risk the life of their 18 month old baby girl on a boat and they can't swim to get here over somebody who's just born here by accident. And, and you know, I, I don't understand the, the whole idea of this bashing immigrants. These people risk life and limb to come and contribute to our society. And yeah. the, this idea that they come to mooch off of things, you can't mooch off of anything without a social security number. You can't, there's no, you know, they pay taxes like we all do. They pay taxes through rent. They pay taxes through whatever yeah. they buy and income, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's a big red herring. There's so many other terrible things that we need to fix. And, and this immigration thing is just a way to waste time and take away from the real issues that we're all facing, which take generations to fix and nobody can get um, elected based on a plan that's going to take 30 years to, to enforce, you know, it's anyway, that's a, my, like my, I said, my wife, my wife has uh, really changed my political views and to back to where I was, you know, I kind of had gone 
to the right, to the right, because it was like, I'm just, well, I'm working. So, you know, I feel good about that. So she really um, made me rethink and just revisit and relearn where I was when I was 18 years old, which was much more sympathetic to people and to things and to not just myself. So, well, sure. I mean, if, if Christians, if all Christians learned about Jesus, I think it would be a better place. If, if you know, if people, people, we talk about that one, but people follow Jesus who don't follow Jesus, you know, that's right. They don't follow Jesus. It's Republican teaching. Jesus, not old school Jesus. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, I said, when I first started learning the Bible, I said, you know, even if you didn't, um, if you weren't a Christian, you could still follow the things that Jesus said. You'd have of a course. good life. You know, I'm a Christian but, that way. I'm absolutely yeah. a Christian that way. Yeah. Do you I'm love not your religious. fellow man? That's yeah. right. Love you. Be good to your. Love your neighbor. Be kind. Don't rewind. I'm going back to the blockbuster. <laughs> rewind. Be kind, but yeah. just be good to people. Do and unto so others can, as you'd have them do unto you. Yeah. So that that basic premise pervades all the world's religions, and if you just follow that, however you know how you live your life and how you worship, it's almost sometimes you can tie it together, but some people uh, use it as a um, separator, like that. So in the same way in music. Sure. I don't think just because you went to music school that gives you a, a, a right to be arrogant and to disrespect other musicians who didn't learn like that. They learned on their own. And the same way, um, just because you went to seminary or, you know, you've been a Christian your whole life doesn't mean you can tell somebody else that they don't understand how to be a good person. Yeah, or they're going to go to hell if you don't believe what they believe. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that, that that's the whole thing. So music ties all of us together and um you should also uh be um open to other people and to accepting of others because nobody's got the right to say i'm right in music in religion in life i love you brother and you can thank that's that's thank emily (laughs) one of my one of my greatest teachers well i it's always just great to see you ted i'm so thrilled to, to spend time with you i know it's been a a long conversation. I don't care. I just, I'm just thrilled to catch up with you. And let's please do this sooner than later. Okay. Oh well, I'm just happy. I want to hear how you do on your guitar. Um, I said I got my, I get my second shot on Friday. So not only have I had COVID antibodies, and so I've, I've been vaccinated, which makes me doubly uh, cool. So right. if you do, we can do virtual guitar lessons or something like that. Oh, that's so but sweet. I'd and I'll, I'll, maybe I'd we can do a quid pro quo. I can give you a couple of voice lessons in exchange. If you, I frustrated more people. No, actually, I'm okay now because um, I had one uh, one lady from Adam Sandler showed me how to lie down right sure. on the floor and do that. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'll do it with my wife, but I'm not lying down on the floor. So yeah, I do that with all my you, students. Yeah. No, really? Put books, you put books on your belly and you feel feel the low breath. Oh, it's a whole bunch of stuff, man. You have but to I learn sing, how to breathe I, like a baby. That's it. I sing all the time. And I like, the, you know, there's some people I like singing with and just, you know, singing along with them. Sure. I, li- I like that, you know? Sure. So it's cool. But then when I said sitting next to somebody like you, it's like, it's too intimidating to sing along with you. Well, I mean, I, that may be the only thing I have over you, Ted. Every other aspect of music oh, you got, making, you got your hair music, too. <laughs> music making, music production. Mu- I mean, you, you've you got it in spades. So uh, are I'm, you going to look I'm, like Heisenberg? You're going to put your Heisenberg hat on now? I'm, uh, yeah, like that. You know, my, <laughs> chapeau, right? my chapeau. But I said, I'm, um, it, I'm just happy that you're in my life. And I'm happy to have somebody like yourself 
uh, in my circle of friends. And I, I feel the same you. way, Ted. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks for being on the show. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. All right, brother. All right. You too. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Ted Perlman. Thanks, Ted, for being on the show. You're welcome any old time you like. It's always great to talk with you. Thanks for listening. Be kind. Do good work. And until next time. Get on to my show.